0: Let me start off, did I miss any blanks or did anyone miss any blanks they want? See, the one time I do that, nobody's missed any blanks, Lee. You can't win. You can't. Okay. Psalm 9, Psalm 10, questions. So, I understand that when we're seeing oppression, the way that we should respond is to recognize that God's still in control of it. Yeah. But I kind of have a twofold question. Okay. What should we do to help those who are being oppressed? Mm-hmm. And how can we comfort them? Because we can't just say, Oh well God's in control. That doesn't really comfort someone who's in the midst of being oppressed and going through the difficulty of whatever they're facing. Okay. Um, so the two questions: What do you say to them, and what do we do to help? Well, certainly within the degree that's within our power, we ought to help those who are suffering. We ought to. Well, there's there's two. There's, let me say. Let me bring down those two steps. There's, there's empathy. We are to grieve with those who grieve, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, enter into their suffering. We're to visit those who are in prison. I mean, th- these are the empath- empathy, care. Open your heart to them. Again, which is, which is why I'm trying to emphasize as someone who staunchly believes in the sovereignty of God, who somebody is me, who as long as people mean what I mean by it has no problem going by the term Calvinist. Rejecting some notion that that embraces a stoic, cold, emotionless view of the world, it simply is incompatible with scripture. And so, I, and so, I'm trying to highlight: David sees God's in control, and David is tore up and vexed and 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 just provoked and and crying out about what's going on. They both can coexist. It's not either you're Spock and you believe God's in control, and you're just sort of all is as it should be they're both there and trying to emphasize that so that'd be the first point be empathy stepping into their suffering um the second would just be doing real good where you can um that may be financial help i mean james talks about if your brother or sister comes to you and is poor and, and and naked and you you close your heart to him and say be warm and be filled what good is that that's dead faith um jesus talks about a judgment to come where those who, f- he says, you fed me? Well, Lord, when do we feed you? Well, as least as much as you did, to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now, I think there we've got to figure out the brethren, probably has to do with Christians or even possibly future-believing Israel, but my point is simply um, practical acts of love and kindness and, and feeding the poor and the helpless um, are real things we can do, um, Going beyond that gets more challenging. I mean, Moses strikes down the man striking his brethren, but then um, Stephen tells us in his speech, Moses understood that God had raised him up as a deliverer. So unless God's raised you up as a deliverer, I wouldn't necessarily encourage you to go You know, step it. Now that's different. Jesus says no greater love is his friend than he lays down his life for his neighbor. So if you're walking down, you see someone in the dark alley being attacked, and okay, it might cost you your life you go help them. Certainly. Um, So those would be the most immediate things. Practical aid, practical help, um, compassion, uh, empathy, entering into their suffering. Those would be their things. In a bigger sense, um, casting your vote for, supporting righteous judges, righteous legislation, righteous law that might help. um, Those would be good things. Uh, I mean, and before I get to the second question, I want to add to that, like, what can you do? And your second question is, what do you tell them? Um, what do you What do? You do? I, I think those are the types of things we can do. And we cannot look... And the other thing I'd say is we cannot hide from that. I think there can be a temptation to... That's unpleasant. Don't look at that. And obviously there's the other danger of being morbidly obsessed with it. You know what I mean? But I think... If Scripture, and I mean, you'll be amazed if you read through the Psalms, if you ever do one of those Bible reading plans, how often and how much this theme of anguish and lament shows up in them, which tells me God expects His people, if they're actually got their eyes open, to be wrestling with this stuff a lot. You know, um, He expects us to be vexed and Lord, what is going on and why is this happening? An awful lot in the Psalms, so don't hide from it. It can be easy, especially. Um, as you get more and more Christian friends and family, sort of be in a happy little bubble. You know, like, be aware of what's going on in the world around you. Um, those, would, those would all be things that I'd say. Anyone want to add to what can be done? What do you say to them? That's your next question. Well, of course, the question there depends on whether or not they're believers. I think if they are believers, Sarah, um, be careful how you do it. God is in control, can be comforting. I mean, that, that is the very, in fact, message of this psalm. I do think it's actually much better to lay those foundations before you hit the whirlwind. I think it's a lot better to have a deep confidence in God's sovereignty and God's rule before you encounter this. Um, but it, it certainly can happen. I think you need to compassion. Now, here's again, it's compassion and walking through things and talking and not just sort of sprinkling a Bible verse on it. You know, Well, God's in control and God, all things work together for good. You know, and sitting down and just saying, you know, but but let me say why I think it is helpful. You either have to conclude there is a purpose and a meaning in your suffering or there is not. You have to, it's either or. And so you can get God off the hook and make God look um, innocent of any culpability or any involvement, but in doing so, you will destroy any meaning in the suffering. So you can say... God's a gentleman. God keeps his hands off. And Satan did this, and God had nothing to do with this, and God, God's just standing back. He's got to let the world run as it runs, because he's given man free will, and you can give those answers. And it certainly resolves, or potentially seems to resolve, any tension of, like, well, how could God do this? But now, of course, you've got to conclude your suffering is meaningless. It is ca- it's serving no good purpose. There's, it means nothing. It's arbitrary. It's, it's, it could have been avoided, and it didn't. Or, you can conclude, God is working some, I don't know what, but he's got good purposes in that, in, in our suffering. Um, and, I, and I think I've heard testimonies of people who have gone through difficulty only later to see how that difficult time equipped them for something later to come. Oh. So to me, it's far more comforting to believe, I don't know what God is up to, but it's good, And if I knew what it were, I would praise him for it. I firmly believe that. I do not believe when we get to heaven, we'll say to God, we did a pretty good job of it, but I think it would have been better if this had happened instead of this. I think as we see what he is up to, as we see all the things working together, as we see how that plays into the cosmic tapestry of time, we will fall down our faces and worship, not offer critique. And so I, I believe that. And so I take comfort when I, I mean, I grieve for Ron and Blanche and what is going on there. And I think we're right in crying out, oh, Lord, do not pay us sorrow upon sorrow, but raise her up. And yet, I, I would insist, I believe Ron would believe God has a purpose in this. It did not escape his attention. It did not sneak past his throne. I don't have to have the foggiest idea what that is. And in fact, sometimes I think people get into trouble taking guesses. And it's far better, back, don't know. But we can do both. We can insist God's on his throne. He was on his throne and Blanche got pneumonia. He hadn't taken a day off. And we can cry out, oh, Lord, why do you delay? Raise her up. Heal her. Right? We we can do both. Uh, I take great comfort in that as opposed to God had nothing to do with this. It's just... You know, um, bacteria is going to do what bacteria does and you know it's just the world God created and things just happen and there's no purpose or point to it. So for people who do know the Lord, if you carefully walk them through it, you can, you can beat people up with Bible verses, no doubt, but if you carefully walk them through it, I do think there is great comfort in knowing that God is in control, that God will repay. I... I I remember last week telling the story, of, I heard Tim Keller talk about a guy who came out, I'll just briefly repeat this, from Cambodia, during what they call the killing fields of Cambodia. And he was just testifying. The only way he's able to love his enemies is the confidence that God will judge. Let me, let me show you where this shows up in the New Testament. Go to First Peter 2. First Peter 2. Because I would I would I would insist, not only is our suffering not meaningless, but God is accomplishing his redemptive purposes in and through it. Um, so 1 Peter 2, and we're gonna focus in on um, verses 21 through 25, but I want to start in 13. It's a whole unit. That really goes all the way through 3 7. And it's about submitting ourselves, even in the sense of suffering, to the uh, authorities, rulers, powers God has placed in this world. So the, the head command comes out in verse 13 be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he's going to start breaking it down to the emperor as supreme, to governors as those sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now what Peter's going to do, this is a classic sort of Jewish approach, he's going to argue from the heavy to the light, from the greater to the lesser. Peter will go to the most extreme instances, he'll go to the the most difficult places, and the logic is, if it holds true in the most difficult situation, how much more does it hold true in the lesser situation? Okay. So his first place he's going to go to is a slave whose master beats them for doing good. And of course the rationale is, if it, if it holds true there, how much more if your master is reasonable? How much more if your master is not this wicked? And then he's going to go to Jesus, who, if anyone suffered mistreatment, it was him. If anyone had the right to curse in return, if anyone had the right to raise his hand and strike back, it was him. He didn't. How much more us? That, that's the rationale. So, um, so then he says in verse 16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Then we get to our first specific case. Servants, be subject, same verb as verse 13, to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. Again, I want to get to purpose here. Here is what appears like senseless suffering. Imagine we're the first century church. We've just gathered on a Lord's Day, and with us is a slave. And the slave shows up with a, with a blackened mark on their face. And you say, what happened? And you say, I was serving my master, and he hit me because he was drunk. And you say, well, were you, were you being lazy? Were you, were you slacking off? Were you doing poor work? No, I was working diligently and hard, and he was, flew off into a drunken rage, and he hit me. Let's make this worse. Let's imagine it's a female slave. And say, what should I do? And say, hey, we just got a letter from Peter. Let's see what he says. And part of what Peter's going to do to comfort her is give her meaning and purpose for her suffering and her oppression and mistreatment. So here's the first statement Verse 19 This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So, what's one of the first things I can say? It pleases God. It's a gracious thing. God is pleased when his children, for his sake, graciously endure mistreatment. There's meaning, right? There's some meaning. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And again, we're going from greater to lesser. If it's gracious... If God can mean good in mistreatment, we do good. Well, then we really need to shut up when we're being punished for doing evil. Then he broadens it out of slaves in verse 21 to anyone. For to this you have been called. To what? Graciously, patiently enduring evil. But he's going to bring in purpose, it's not meaningless. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So what's the next thing you can tell someone's suffering? Our Savior did the very same thing. He modeled being oppressed and mistreated. And you get to share to some degrees in his suffering. There's a greater identification that you can have with him. You're sharing in his experiences. Um, Christ left this example, and you're following in his footsteps. Then we read, now here's the argument from greater to lesser again. He committed no sin, and the assumption is we have. And that's the true assumption, of course. Neither was deceit found in his mouth, and deceit is at times found in our mouths. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. It's an argument from greater to lesser. If the one who was perfectly righteous, the one who had done nothing wrong, if he did not revile when people insulted him, how much more do you and I, who do have guilt, who do to some degree deserve it, how much more ought we to shut our mouths and not curse those who curse us? That's the rationale. Okay? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do, Sarah? Finish... Verse 23 for me. He was looking to God's judgment. Same thing we saw today. Jesus did not say, you know what? It doesn't matter. You know what? It's worth it. I don't care. No, he wanted vindication. He wants vindication. He simply waited for God's timetable. The desire for judgment, the desire for justice, the desire for vindication is all good and right, He put it into God's timetable and hands, just like David looking for God's coming judgment. That's that's what we're told Jesus did. Now look at what God accomplished through that. Uh, That's the the argument of this passage now moves to. How did Jesus do it? He did it by looking to God's judgment, and Jesus was willing to not curse in return, not revile in return, not strike in return, because he was confident his father would judge. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly, What was God able to accomplish through that? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. I think what he's saying is when the suffering servant of God willfully suffered mistreatment and oppression and trusting himself to his creator, God was able to save his entire people. And I think the implication is when you or I follow in his steps and and entrust ourselves to a faithful creator and willing to suffer mistreatment, God will also work redemptive purposes through it. So to me that's incredibly encouraging. I don't know how but God will not allow your suffering in which you've entrusted yourself to him to not bear good fruit. Um, I have a friend of mine, I won't name him because he'll be nervous. His grandmother put up with a, with a uh, her husband was an unbeliever and a jerk and at times a drunk, and uh, she, she endured and was patient. And he asked her, well, Grandma, how do you put up with him? Why don't you leave him? And she said, well, God puts up with me. A few years after she died, he came to faith. You see, and she had no idea how God was using her patient, enduring of suffering for good. My friend does. My friend can see it. Oh, wow. God is doing good things there. And those are the types of little glimpses we get. Just like we see Rahab's glimpse of what the good God is doing through Pharaoh's hardened heart, right? This, this Canaanite prostitute's coming to faith because God's judgment over there. We don't see what all he's up to. But we get little glimpses here and there. So to me, it's far more meaningful to say to someone in suffering, God, as you entrust yourself to God, as you willingly endure mistreatment, as you say, God, you will judge, I will not, he will work redemption through that. I don't know how and where, but he will. He will not waste it. To me, that's far more encouraging than it's meaningless and it means nothing and God wishes it could stop too, but he's got to leave his hands off because he's... So, but that's a much bigger theological picture that you're probably not in two minutes going to share with someone. So it might be the wisest thing to sit down like Job's friends did and just weep and keep your hands over your mouth. Just because I believe all that doesn't mean the first time I talk to someone suffering I'm going to try to give them that vision. There's a wisdom to just, I'm just going to sit here and weep with you. But I do think as we're able, helping them piece together that vision of God is going to give them ultimately confidence. But one of the reasons why I'm trying to emphasize it now is so that those foundations are laid before the flood comes, before the tornado and the whirlwind comes. Although some of you may be in that even now. Um, so that's a very long answer Long answer, but no, I, I do think this is good medicine Psalm 9 and 10 is good medicine we can beat people about the head with it especially if we think that somehow affirming the sovereignty of God means we're just not going to be weeping at the same time I, I, that's really how we in other words, the real way we can do violence is if the implied rationale is God's in control, God means good so be happy and Psalm 9 and 10 make it clear, no, that does not necessarily follow. It does not. I can still worship God, I can still praise Him, and I can still cry out, why, oh Lord, do you delay? Right? So if we're implying to people, stop crying, shut up, and be happy, because God's in control, that's just unbiblical. That type of rationale. Um, so no, weep with them. There's cause to weep. Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb even as he knew what he was about to accomplish and do. Um, Okay. anyone want to add to that, or or say, Lee does.
1: Well, I don't want to add to it. I'll throw fuel on the fire. What about
0: self-defense? And what if the government says to us, the government, our emperor, our
1: kings, say, okay, Christians, everybody line up, whole family, everybody, and they start murdering people. I mean we say, Wow,
0: that's crazy, but it happened to the Jews, of course. Yeah. And the Jews yeah,
1: I've always puzzled that one. Okay. I have
0: I have I don't think I've said anything this morning that would would I certainly don't believe I don't think I've said anything this morning. I mean you should not defend yourself from, from real threat. Um I don't think the turning of the cheeks talking about life and death threats or anything. I think we have their ability to defend ourselves. Uh I, I certainly um would. Well, what if you 're suffering for doing good isn 't that the ultimate suffering i think I think it gets murkier when you 're dealing with yourself because certainly Paul is not telling slaves to strike back. Um, I think it gets trickier when you want to interfere in someone else 's suffering um, when it 's your child who 's being mistreated and you want to intervene. And to that degree, I'd say probably something along the lines of, okay, live by the sword, you're gonna die by the sword. If you're willing to face that, go for it. I, I think you could do both in I think you could do both in faith. You could just say, okay, this is where God has us, and we're just gonna endure and like so Peter, church history tells us Peter was crucified upside down next to his wife and his daughter, and they just encourage each other. I think that's a valid stance. We are given into the power of this. Person, this government, these people. I mean, D- Daniel's friends don't start a revolt. They let themselves get taken to the furnace, right? I mean, the assumption is the Babylonian army is just overpowering. I mean, but they could have, they could have started a grassroots rebellion, and they didn't, right? So I think you can do that in faith. Um, you know, and you got someone like Bonhoeffer who's part of the Valkyrie plot to assassinate Hitler, and I'm going to be slow to condemn him. But I will say, don't be surprised when Hitler executes you when that happens at the very least you know if you're going to say god's if you're going to be like moses god god has raised me up as a deliverer okay just be ready to get cut down um that that's that's what i'd say off the front end what do we do when the government tells us to line up um yeah i don't i don't i haven't thought that far ahead um i trust god will give us wisdom when that day comes um i don't think that's likely happening shortly um, it might, it might. Um, but uh, I'll say this though: I don't think anyone's going to sin who gets in line. I'd have to think through another specifics to know if you'd sin to not get in line. Because the basic premise is you obey government unless you're sinning. You obey government unless you're sinning. Um, and so, I certainly would say out of those options, you think through because it's like I'm not likely to be get in line. It's going to be something like uh, you know register your firearms. Or turn them in, or make yourself more weak and helpless. It's going to be by degrees, right? Right? OK. I'll say this: I don't think you can sin by obeying those things. I think anyone who chooses it's, unless you're fundamentally disobeying a command of God, you're safe in submitting and entrusting yourself. You've got a good pattern here. Jesus could say, this isn't a legitimate court. This is, this, is a, this is a kangaroo court. This isn't according to God's law. You've made this up. He didn't, right? But Paul appeals to Caesar. So I, it's not as simple as, okay, just follow along with it, which is why I don't want to give a simplistic answer. So pray that God gives us wisdom on the day they tell us to line up. That's my, that's my answer. Okay. Oh, Bob.
1: Uh, you made reference in the sermon that um, the passages here about who the evil are is to help us understand that we are part of the evil and and you did make some reference to the idea that obviously there are evil people out there Um, but I think a part of our problem in the church is that we don't recognize the evil people that are out there Mm -hmm. so that we for example uh, we're already being told to line up because um, marriage has been redefined unbiblically by the government. And now we're forced to deal with the way the government's dealing with this issue. Uh, I actually really liked the statement of Justice Scalia in his dissent on the homosexual marriage case. He said, who the hell do we think we are? Talking about the Supreme Court people. Because we have such a very jaded view. And the church doesn't have any outrage about what's going on. The church just puts their head in the sand and ignores these evil doers and our our freedoms and our our uh, opportunities in this world are being taken away constantly by the government, uh, so I think we need you know as David is looking at this yeah. david's not talking about personal infringements against him he 's looking at how how evil people are injuring um, the people of God, how they 're affecting them, and is asking for judgment on that and I don't know whether this is considered one of the imprecatory psalms or not, but it certainly implies that oh, yeah. that uh, we ought to be theoretically be seriously thinking about um, praying that these wicked people be affected that mm-hmm. um, they rendered
0: powerless, that they would be humbled to know they're just men. Yeah. And, and no, certain,
1: yeah, certainly one of my soapboxes is the. Uh, Issue of abortion, which of course has been imposed upon the church, and we talk about Hitler. Well, we might as well be talking about the Supreme Court when we're talking about Hitler because we're killing off babies left and right. And I find it interesting that, oh Lord, uh, um, let's see, where does it talk about the orphan here? But the biggest, the greatest orphan is the child in the womb. Right. He has no father because the Supreme Court has taken away his father's rights to say anything, so he has no father. All he has is a mother, so he's an orphan, and he's powerless and has nothing, to, no opportunity to do anything. And the church doesn't do anything. The church is doing nothing to That's stop not true. it. Now, they're not, they could do a lot more. They could, they could totally, do a lot more. Yes, they, they could, could more. totally control what's going on if the church would get together, and maybe the church would um, take a strong stand uh, um, within its own organizations to affect the situation. So, anyway, I think that there is a. Uh, I think we're already being told to stand up and and uh, um, be dealt with. May not be killed, but we are definitely being affected.
0: That was a very interesting question, Bob. Uh, sorry, no. Let me let me respond to what you said. I'm not trying to. Te- I'm just teasing you. We got five minutes. Okay, let me see. Um, yes. I certainly would agree, to my knowledge, the unborn in the womb is the weakest and most helpless. So with God's heart for the widow, the orphan, the powerless, the oppressed, i got to imagine the, the, the unborn child is the single greatest embodiment of weakness and powerlessness. And, and, and we would do well to both. I, I think your point is saying not only sympathize with them, but be outraged. There's a place for outrage. David is outraged at what the wicked is doing at the the offense. Um, So amen and amen. Not just weeping over and grieving over the death of the unborn, but being outraged at it, praying that God would act. Um, The church, I know people are doing things, Bob. The church isn't doing nothing. The church could do more. Um, But I'm just pointing out, even in the psalm, we don't know what David himself is doing. I presume David's not king yet, because I think he could affect a fair bit more, especially over those laying in wait, snaring and trapping and pouncing on the wicked. Um, But we could certainly... Let me... five minutes, let me say this. We should never be at peace with abortion, We should never stop being outraged by it or weeping over it. We should just never stop praying about it. Then you bring up uh, the redefinition of marriage. Amen there as well. However, I I think with marriage, and even all those issues of sexuality, we need to be equally outraged and opposed. Uh, A few years ago I did a message on this. I would suggest that the no-fault divorce laws initiated by Reagan copying Soviet laws was just as big of a redefinition of marriage as the Obergefell decision. I would suggest that absolutely, that taking marriage from a lifelong covenant where you at least needed to demonstrate some criminal act had occurred to break it to no fault, it stops when I want, it's a contract, it's as radical a redefinition of what marriage is as who gets to participate in it. And the church was equally silent there. So my only concern is, in our outrage, we're not selective in our outrage. Uh, uh, that we we put it positively, we should be pro marriage. <laughs> we should be very pro marriage, and we should be opposed to and offended by anything that would would warp, twist, or destroy it. Um, ab- absolutely, absolutely. And we should we should be outraged at all those things that are out there. Amen. I'm, I just. The danger with outrage is we can be very selective about what we're outraged about. And very frequently we're outraged about the things we don't struggle with. And so we're outraged at the sins we don't struggle with. So we, amen, be outraged at sin. Part of what I wanted to highlight even in Psalm 9 and 10 is David's just as outraged by their, their wicked pouncing on the poor is they are in their self-reliance and their pride and their vanity. That's bugging him as well. That, and I'd say another thing about why I have 11 verses laid out like this is so that we don't, we're not selective about which sins outrage us by laying them all out. And David's just saying, these people are wicked. Look at them. They, they're self-confident. There's plenty of movies and plenty of things that encourage people to be self-confident, Right? Are we outraged? I mean, so you're going through this, and oh, goodness, my mom's raising her hand. Do I dare, do I dare eat a peach Descend the stair? I've measured out my life with teaspoons. What? And then to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Yeah. Yes. Yes. No. Can someone look it up while I speak? I can't. I can't pontificate and look up a verse at the same time. It's it's in the Beatitudes. It's not Luke, though. Uh, I'm thinking Matthew six or seven would be my guess. But um, no, the outrage of that—that's the situation that Sarah's talked about—should outrage us even more. Two professing believers. They're not. I mean, to some degree, when the Canaanites act like Canaanites. How outraged can you get? You know they're acting like Canaanites. Matthew eighteen six, Matthew 18, six not even close. Well, it's right book, Matthew eighteen six. Sarah, would you read Matthew eighteen six, please? Okay. And and so when you've got people who should know better, people who name the name of Christ, who have the Scripture, and when they um, and we don't know, and I'm not I'm not presuming to guess, sin has taken place. Perhaps one of the partners committed the sin that justified the divorce, but then that sin is the problem. Or perhaps the divorce itself is not biblical and unjustified. Sin has taken place, and this sin is a stumbling block and suffering for these children. And it's happening between believers. And it's happening in the public's eye. Sarah knows about it. It's going to happen. People are going to know about this. It's going to bring reproach to the name of Christ. It should be, it's outrageous. We should be outraged. We should weep and grieve and be outraged simultaneously, Yes, read the passage, and then we'll go. Okay, do you want me to start at five? Hit it. Yes, Sarah. Whoever receives such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Yeah. Amen. So we just got to make sure, I mean, grow in our sympathy with the oppressed. Grow in our... Universal outrage at sin and not just pet particular sins that really bother us. That I'm only emphasizing it because I've certainly had people who are just f- fine. We'll go pay money to watch movies where some sin is glorified. It's funny after all. But that sin's offensive and disgusting. And part of what we see with David laying out is he seems to be just as offended by their forgetting of God as they're destroying the poor. And so if you're going to be offended at sin, David's offended at sin, be offended at sin and not. Not that you were saying that, I just want to say it in addition, because I think we do paint a ugly picture to the world when we look at some sins and we say nothing, and then we get really upset about other ones, and they say, you're just being being arbitrary, you're just being pharisaical, you're being hypocrites. Where's you know, I mean, that's what the world's saying about gay marriage, right? Oh, where was the church getting all upset when their divorce rates mirrored the world? Oh, but that that one's close to home, so we don't say much about that. But over now marriage is sacred. That's that's what we're pushing. And I think we'd do well to recognize some validity to that charge of hypocrisy from the culture. The, The reason the Amish keep winning court cases is people get they believe what they believe. People take them seriously. They think their beliefs are ridiculous. They're driving around in horse and buggy carts. But no one questions whether the Amish really believe that. We say marriage is sacred and the world looks at us and our divorce rates and they're like, you don't believe that. We should have a certain amount of egg on our face even as we don't compromise the truth and recognize, (laughs) dude, fair enough, but marriage is sacred. You know what I mean? That's, That's all I'm trying to balance off. We're over time. We'll pick this up in two weeks.